This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, so there are two directions I'd like to go with, uh, with my questions. One, have to, one set has to do with the, uh, the films and the interviews and the research that went into the whole project itself. And the other one is more about Lanzmann himself, who, although he doesn't say much in these films, really shapes the interviews and uh, what, we, what we see um, going on. And so biographical background on that. And with that, um, I wonder if we could, we could start with what kind of research he did in order to set these interviews up. So learning about the Shoah himself, finding the people to the testimonies that he wanted to record. Mm-hmm. So Lanzmann starts out as a journalist and comes to this with a background as a philosopher, a journalist, and takes that approach of investigative journalism in some ways. He starts in the early 70s, actually, beginning research into this project. It hasn't... Uh, materialized into this film called Shoah yet. Um, in 1971, he marries a, uh, a German Jewish woman named Angelica Schrobsdorf. I'm probably mispronouncing her name. She just passed away in 2016. Angelica was his second wife. Um, she was actually an assimilated Austrian Jew um, who ended up living back in Germany after the war and also spending some time in Israel. It is with Angela that he kind of makes some of these first trips to Israel in the early 70s, makes a film called Pourquoi Israel, and from there begins discussions with several people in Israel who are starting to talk about the Holocaust in a different way. Um, He does primary research with the book um, written and published in 1961, rather written over several years, but published in 1961, by historian Raoul Hilberg, who taught for many years at the University of Vermont. Uh, Raoul Hilberg publishes in 1961, The Destruction of the European Jews, which is a book that is probably 900 pages long. Um, And that becomes a sort of of encyclopedia for Lanzmann alongside the transcripts of the Eichmann trial. So the work that is already going on in in Israel prior to the 1960s and leading up to the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem in 1961 those particular witnesses and that particular testimony also becomes part of the fabric of what Lanzmann is using as the basis for his research into the film that he is going to create that is, is finally um, released in 1985 as Shoah. Um, so he spends this time in Israel. He spends this time doing research. He starts writing letters calling people, amasses a team of of a few researchers, a few people in Israel, a few people in France. He gets money from the Israeli government to the tune of about $77,000 to start this project. Um, He signs a contract with the Israeli government when he gets this money. Um, I say it's 77 in in today's terms. It's a little bit less than that um, back in the 1970s. He signs a contract saying that this this project will eventually become property of, of the Israeli state. Um, he disguises himself when he's reaching out to some of the perpetrators because he's seeking out perpetrators and survivors. As he begins this project, he disguises himself as a German professor. He changes his name when he's calling people, when he's writing to people to try to get them to agree to testify, to give their testimony on camera for him. Um, sometimes he's only recording audio, and sometimes he's also doing film and, and the audio. 
He also conducted several preliminary interviews with individuals prior to actually putting them on camera. Um, so this is a really long process that's going on. Um, I would say from 74 to 77, um, but even prior to that, that he'd been conducting the research and thinking about, about this, this project that became known as Shoah. Mm -hmm. That explains a lot. So in the, the 70s, especially the fact that he read uh, Hilberg, who was one of the people who really uh, unrolled the history of the Judenrat and the issue of um, to what extent were Jews involved themselves in this process and just the way he was really grilling uh, Paula Biren right. um, about that, trying to get into that. Mm -hmm. um, so, the, so he's conducting the interviews in the late 70s and early 80s with perpetrators and survivors. Correct. And then he's, how does he make the decision to, to do a documentary without historical footage just based on oral testimony? And here we had just a few inklings in these very late films with the scenes from the Lodz Ghetto, the historical scenes, Correct. which is notably absent in the actual Shoah film. So by the time we get to 2017, he is acquiescing. <laughs> he is, you know, he okay. is putting in a few archival images. The interesting thing in working through the outtakes, all those 225 hours, one of the first things we did when that came into the museum was start scrolling through each and every bit and... Lo and behold, there are three reels of 35 millimeter, not 16, on which the film was shot, of archival footage from the Bundesarchiv in, in Germany, which was the state archives of Germany, and other materials that are also available at the National Archives in the United States. So he was looking at the archival images as part of his research. Just He was looking at photos, he was looking at archival moving images, he was reading the actual official documents of the governments in the state and also reading multiple memoirs. But his choice to not use any archival footage in his magnum opus, Shoah, is really fundamental to his sort of philosophy and his rhetoric, that, that kind of the arc that we then see in, in the nine and a half hour film Shoah. You cannot represent this horror, basically. You can't. The, the, here there is no why. He goes back, to, he goes back to, to Levy and this idea that this is the unthinkable, the unimaginable, the unrepresentable. So to use those archival images is almost doing a disservice to the witnesses who were there. For, for Lanzmann, it was more important to do that investigation, talk to these individuals who were the first person primary primary individuals who experienced this and to understand that, to put together a particular argument that would then show how this happened, because it, we can never explain why. This is Lanzmann's belief. We can never explain why the Holocaust happened. We can never explain why the systematic destruction of, of European Jewry and also other populations. So there were homosexuals, there were political prisoners, the Jehovah's Witnesses, there's six million Jews and six million others. Lanzmann's project focuses primarily on the six million Jews. We can't, why this happened? Impossible. So he wants to show how. So his project really is this investigation into how. So the argument that he constructs is about the how. And the how in this particular day and age where we are in 2019 has changed somewhat because many more people have gone on the record than those who had gone on the record when he started this investigation and this production in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's very powerful the way uh, 
you can see in the faces of the survivors who have witnessed these events, just the, their ability to tell it really lets it unfold before our eyes. So I think audiences, especially in the 2000s, have seen many of the documentary images. And even if we can't remember them in detail, we do see them as they're speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has these, um, he's decided to let the witnesses speak for themselves. Um, can you say anything about the number of people he interviewed versus the number who went into the original project of the Shoah film and then these subsequent uh, few films that he's made on them? So about 80 people um, that are actually recorded on film for the project that became Shoah. Just, just about 80 individuals. Um, again, the two women that we see here today don't figure in... Well, Paula Byron has a very short, a very short on-scene image in, in Shoah um, because her conversation about, about the Lodge ghetto and that development was important to the argument that he's making in Shoah. But Ruth Elias's testimony does not appear at all in, in Shoah. So um, it's about 80 people that he interviews. Um, the percentage of individuals that actually end up in Shoah, I would say about half of that. Um, in, in bits and, and pieces. Some people, the, the most memorable for, for most people who have seen Shoah, Bomba, the barber of Treblinka, Karski, the Polish messenger from the Polish underground government. Um, these are particular individuals who really stand out um, in, in the final film Shoah. Um, these women, because they didn't end up being architects, either on the Jewish side or on the non-Jewish side, of the final solution. For the most part, the women that were interviewed do not make it into the final film, um, which is really, you know, seeing them in these individual and discrete films that he makes after Shoah. Um, and I do have to, do have to give uh, some, some praise to the individuals at the Holocaust Museum who actually made made these films possible. Um, Ray Farr, who got her start doing the World at War series for mm-hmm. Channel 4 in the UK, who ran the film and video archive at the Holocaust Museum. It was her foresight in 1996 to, after visiting with Lanzmann in, in his home in Paris, to get this stuff into the museum. It took until 1999 until all of the outtakes arrived. Uh, in 96, they thought there were 350 hours. By, you know, by 2005, actually, is when we realized, oh, it's really only 225 hours of outtakes over a million feet of film and original audio recordings that were, that were shipped from, from France to the United States. Um, it's, it's a project that has really, that became something very different than, than what it was when it started, but it was always viewed by those who knew about all of the research and work that Lanzmann had done as a, an extremely important archive of first-hand accounts. Okay. I have a little moment. side question to ask, but I should note that... Um, much of this footage is now available to view on the web through the uh, website of the Holocaust Museum. Mm-hmm. So there are some things of a personal nature um, that were not included on the public web, but you can log on to the Holocaust Museum website and watch uh, many of the, much of the original footage. But About I'm curious. About 75% of it has been okay. preserved and digitized and is streaming now um, with additional documentation, biographies of each individual, and also the complete transcripts are available as well. 
And yeah. it is finally available for somebody besides Lanzmann to use. And that did not happen until 2016. He held on for that long. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I have viewed some of that myself, and I have to say it's a big difference to see them on the big screen than it is to yeah. see them on one's computer screen. At the very beginning, though, you mentioned that the Israeli government funded this, and the idea was that this would all ultimately go to the Israeli government. Did the right. Israeli government allow it to go to the Holocaust Museum? How did that work? The Israeli government didn't know that Lanzmann was in negotiations to sell it to the Holocaust Museum. So in 96, he's starting to think about the first film that he's going to make with the outtakes, which comes out in 1999, which is the film about Sobibor. And he is trying to figure out how he is going to fund this film, because we know that filmmaking is an expensive, expensive endeavor. And Lanzmann himself knows this, having gone through this several times. In order to fund that film, he sold the outtakes to the Holocaust Museum. Now, the Israeli government didn't realize how much there was. Um, there, was there were never any checks and balances after the film came out. Um, it's released, and um, Showa itself, the nine and a half hours, the completed film, released and still distributed by New Yorker Films, although now it's, I think it's with another distributor. Um, it left New Yorker maybe in 2015, I want to say, but don't quote me on that. Um, up until that time, that original material for the finished film was with New Yorker Films and another distributor, Aleph, in France. Um, the rest of the outtakes were under his bed, in, in a warehouse in, in the outskirts of Paris, in two of the different editors' homes. I mean, these things were all over the place. Nobody really wanted... It's really unruly to, to deal with the materiality of an archive like this, let alone the intellectual and emotional components of an archive like this. Um, that being the case, the, the state of Israel wasn't, you know, um, wasn't actively pursuing getting all of this actual physical material under, under, their, um, under their control, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so, but once he sells it to the Holocaust Museum and once a big you know, PR campaign is launched by the Holocaust Museum in 1999 to say, hey, Lanzmann's made another film from this. Look at all this stuff we now have. It's like, whoa. Hold up. So Yad Vashem says, uh-uh, this is ours. We own this. And the Holocaust Museum is like, we paid $500,000 for this. No, you don't own this. <laughs> you only paid $77,000 for this. You know, Lanzmann's made whatever he's made, and other people and distributors have, you know. So it became a really kind of contentious situation. It did go to court. Um, Everyone was angry at Lanzmann. Um, he had to give back $250,000 of the 500000 that he originally was paid, and that 250000 went into a fund at the Holocaust Museum, and that was what we were able to start doing the, the restoration work with okay. in 1999, 1998-99, by, by the time the money is returned. And now all of the outtakes are jointly held by the Holocaust Museum, which is a U.S. government entity, so now all of the Shoah outtakes are jointly property of the government of the United States and the government of Israel. But Lonsman still fought tooth and nail to not let anybody else use those until 2016. And people gave in to his whims. It was, you know, it was still, Lonsman was necessary to figure out the bits and pieces that we couldn't figure out just by winding through this material and looking at the written documentation and talking to his two editors. So Ziva Postek, who edited Shoah, is still alive and, and kicking in Israel. And she actually, there's just a film that came out about her this, this year um, and her role in the construction of Shoah. Mm -hmm. And then Sabine Mamou was the other editor who worked for years with Lanzman and edited all the films that he made from the outtakes post-Shoah. Mm -hmm. 
I guess it's important to note how um, sudden the Shoah film burst onto the scene in the 80s. We weren't really used to seeing interviews with survivors. And now we've seen many, many films. You know, most of us have probably seen Schindler's List or even the Holocaust TV miniseries, as well as any number of other reenactment type uh, films. And so we've, our, our visual repertoire has been filled out and, um, and we can see things differently now than we could have back then. Um, An interesting note about mm -hmm. the red coat and Schindler's List, mm -hmm. that also goes back to the Eichmann trial. Okay. One, I, I cannot remember the name of the individual who testified about seeing his daughter running through in a red coat, but time and again, the Eichmann trial and that recorded testimony and those transcripts become the bulk of what people use to reinterpret that even for fictional accounts of the Holocaust. And one of the reasons for the Eichmann trial and or the way the Eichmann trial was conducted in, uh, in 1961 was to have survivors speak and teach about the Holocaust. Um, and so that was kind of the original opportunity to get that testimony out. And the, the transcripts were uh, recently released in the 2000s with the uh, Deborah Lipstadt trial, the interrogations of Eichmann as well. Um, about the, the footage itself, one of the things that struck me was um, what was going on in the background, both acoustically <laughs> and visually. Um, he has in the Ruth Elias one, the dogs are barking through about half of it, if not yeah. more. And uh, in the other, he has his cigarette smoke yeah. in front of her face. And then in the initial scenes with the, the shipping lane mm -hmm. out in the Mediterranean, probably. It's Panama City, Florida. Oh, oh, Panama, oh, Florida. Okay. <laughs> she was, she uh, was at a conference. Mm -hmm. She was a neurologist and a psychiatrist. And she was actually treating survivors and others. Um, spent in the mid-1950s, she, um, she left Germany. Um, went back to Poland for a split second. Couldn't live there ended up in Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where she lived out her days until 2016. She died wow. at 97 years old. Yeah, and after being on camera for Landsman, she's very reluctant. This was the first time Paula Byron puts herself out there. And, and we, we hear this in the, it's really, I have to apologize, the, the Paula Byron interview is one of the ones that is out of sync. Um, the part where we see them walking on the beach and mm. you get the voiceover of, of Paula kind of talking about things. They're using, you know, they're using a different piece of that footage and then you'll see a moment where it still is, is slightly slipping out of sync as they, as they come into kind of a medium close up right. on them on the beach. She was at a conference there. He insisted that he had to he had to interview her. He races there in 1978, I think 78, 79, like the winter of 78, 79, that he interviews um, Paula in in Panama City, and then at her hotel room later on, in, still in Florida. Ruth Elias is living on a kibbutz. It's 1979, and it's in Israel. There's a lot of noise there. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, they're not. She's not the only. That's that's out on her patio at at her home. Um, but yeah, that's, he really did, you know, he wanted to shoot people as much as possible in surroundings that were familiar to them. This was not the case with Paula Byron, but she was, you know, he had, he had reached out to her almost two years prior. And we hear a little bit of that as he's talking, saying, well, when I, when I wrote to you, when I talked to you. Um, but by this point, she's still a reluctant witness. And then it isn't again until we, we actually were reaching out to her from the Holocaust Museum around 2001 when we were working actively on, on restoring this interview, which is only two, a little bit over two hours long. Ruth's interview is almost three hours long. Um, 
And Ruth, in 1998, uh, writes a memoir. Uh, I, I don't have the full title. It's about survival from Auschwitz to Israel. Um, originally written in Hebrew, but then also translated and now available in English as well. Paula Byron doesn't ever write a memoir. Ruth Elias also takes part at Yad Vashem in 1985, after show is out, in a mock trial of Mengele. So Mengele's body is exhumed in 1985 and proven to be Mengele's body, but it was buried under a different name in 1979 um, on the border between Paraguay and Brazil, where he had been living. The Mossad had hunted him down. He apparently drowned. (laughs) But, I mean, that is, again... He, he drowned and was buried, you know, under a different name. But suddenly, in 1985, his body is exhumed and DNA tests are done, and it is shown that it is that it is Mengele. The Mossad were very clearly involved in that in 1979 and prior. Um, but this mock um, trial that happens in 1985 at Yad Vashem, Ruth Elias is one of the witnesses. They basically bring together, by that point in time, everyone that they, that they could firmly document had actual contact or interaction with Mengele. Um, it's sort of, you could probably speak to this more than I could, Harold, um, survivors who all say they've seen or met Mengele. Right. This became, um, in survival circles, almost a kind of a status. If you could mm-hmm. say you had seen or had some kind of interaction with this man, that made your testimony more important than the next person's. Um, you could, yeah. yeah. So when people got off the trains in, Aus- or in Birkenau and were in the selection, there were, Mengele wasn't the only doctor who said left or right, and people weren't focused on the doctor who was saying it, so they really didn't necessarily know what doctor had sent them either way. And so, as, as Regina very rightly says, how do you know it was him? And, of course, there were pictures and descriptions of him later. So it was very important to get testimony of people who actually could document that they had interacted with that particular man mm-hmm. and not with someone else. And, of course, once we all, um, sort of the bystanders or the post-witnesses, uh, have heard of Mengele, we want to meet someone who has met these um, celebrated perpetrators of mm-hmm. the Holocaust. Um, yeah, so let me get back to the particular particularity of the dogs barking yeah. in, in the kibbutz and the of the shepherd. cigarette smoke and the German shepherd. Yeah. It's kind of like, whoa. As, yeah. yeah. Just, so yeah. was that planned? Um, that um, was not planned. So the, those sort of things just unfolded okay. as, as filming was taking place. You know, they set up a lot beforehand. He did interview everyone off camera before they went on camera for him. Um, they had, you know, they had conversations face to face and sometimes just on the phone, but mostly face to face before he went on camera with people. But those extraneous sounds were not planned at all. And the cigarette smoke? Oh, that's just, yeah, it was 24-7. But it you know, comes there was right a... in the camera's view. If I were the cameraman, I would say, move the ashtray over six inches and then yeah yeah yeah. and I but I you know I I when I spoke with him never could kind of get a clear answer as to whether he ever planned on putting these women in Shoah Uh you know so perhaps some of these were just research interviews um perhaps not you know he was Mm -hmm. he would never clearly say one way or the other about that um we just did push him a lot to you know, to say these, these women's 
testimonies are really important and need need to be seen and need to be heard in their own right. And it isn't until you know a year before his death that um, he died in July of 2018 that these films come out in 2017. Um, we can go over to audience questions in just a moment, and we'd like to have them on mic since we're since it's being filmed for broadcast. So if you can hold your question just for a moment, that'd be great. <laughs> Um, so one, one other uh, um, set of questions or theme that I'd like to pursue is how these interviews fit into the lives of the survivors. So you've already talked a little bit about not having spoken before, having been really persuaded to tes testify, to speak on, on tape for him, and then later on coming out with even more testimony and really getting into their stories. I'm wondering... If, if they didn't get into the, sh the original Shoah film, were some people upset? I mean, if, he's in, if he had those hundreds of hours of footage, there must have been many of, or half of the 80 uh, who didn't, yeah. didn't make it in. Did some of them complain and say, hey, I, <laughs> here, I gave it to you and you didn't use it? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I do know that some people like Ruth Elias used that momentum from Shoah to say, hey, I was also interviewed and I'm going to I'm going to do more and give more of my story. But I've never heard anyone come out complaining about this. I, I've I've basically only read accounts of the individuals who are featured in Shoah, who talk about the first time they saw themselves in the completed film mm. and how they felt about that, because they had recorded, say, five, six, seven hours uh, with Lanzmann. And, you know, at the most of some of the main characters in Shoah, we see 40 minutes of them on, on screen. You know, not 40 minutes in a stretch, usually, you know, edited down to, to smaller chunks. Um, so, but honestly, those who didn't make it in, um, I'm not so sure. So when we spoke to Paula, we were speaking to her on the phone for a while. Um, and then in 2005, she does go back on the record for 11 hours of recorded testimony with uh, Holocaust historian Joan Ringelheim. And those 11 hours are also available at the Holocaust Museum and streaming online. So when you go to the website for the collections at the Holocaust Museum, you can also see that interview with, with Paula Byron. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know. I think for some reluctant mm -hmm. witnesses, and Paula Byron is in Shoah for a, for a brief second, more than a second, you know, maybe 10 minutes total. Um, I, I don't know the, the okay, yeah. complete answer to that. Uh -huh. um, I did just want to give a few other biographical details that don't really come out for either of, of the witnesses mm -hmm. and survivors that we saw here. Um, many of you may, may know already, but um, Ruth Elias escapes after the war is over in 45. Um, her husband has died in, in the camps. Um, she escapes with another Czech male inmate in 45, and they go back to look for their respective families. They do not find them, as she tells us in, in the film that we just saw. Um, in 47, they marry. So she marries uh, Kurt Elias in 1947. In 49, they, they come to Israel and start their life there. Um, Kurt Elias was also married prior to the war and was seeking his partner and his family and did not find them. And that is why it kind of took them those two years, everything that they were going through, decompressing after that experience and then kind of coming together in, in a different way. Uh, they, they, they ran away together, but not as lovers in 1945. This is just something that develops. Um, and so then, and then Ruth Elias was a nurse. That is what she did for her career. So I just find it really interesting that both of these women end up in the medical profession. 
they end up working to heal people. And I, I still cry when I think it's like every, I watch these so many times, you know, from winding through it before I even listen to it, to the, the will to survive, you know, that really just, it just smacks you in the face. And they are so, are so guilty at times because they did that to, to keep themselves alive. They had to, they had to hurt other people, whether that's, you know, a secondary kind of, of hurt that happens. They weren't, you know, literally killing someone except Ruthelius was her own child, her own child. you know, um, these, it's, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Um, you had told me a little bit before about, uh, Paula Byron being mm-hmm. a psychologist and working with yeah. other survivors of the Holocaust and getting their stories out. Um, so I don't know if you want to add a little bit more about her yeah. trajectory, uh, after the war yeah, or um, af- how she survived and, so she, um, she ends up going to medical school in Germany. She got a scholarship and ends up at school in Germany. Um, she had tried to go back to Poland. Um, as you see how the film ends, she says that she's even forgotten her mother tongue. She can't speak it anymore. Um, she wasn't wanted there in Poland. She had no desire to start life again in, in that country. Um, Germany was a means to an end. It was a place where she did her schooling and then came on to the United States. Um, so, and, and she was very active in her community in Cincinnati. Um, you can go online and you can see the memorials for her. You can see where she's buried in which particular Jewish cemetery in Cincinnati. Um, she, was, she was always active in the community. She was reluctant to speak about her own experiences, but she was helping other people through similar struggles. Family. She did have one son. I don't know about her husband. She never actually talked to us about that. So, you know, we didn't push. You know, people offered, these are people who had been through a lot. We were coming back into their lives and saying, hey, we've got all these outtakes now. Can you help us figure out what's not in the paper record? You know, um, so with respect for their participation first in Shoah and respect for their private lives, we only asked for information that was going to help us reconstruct those interviews to the best of our ability rather than pushing further. And she is one who is very much, Paula Buren is very much in control mm-hmm. of the interview and what she wants to say and yeah. doesn't want to say and happen in there. I wonder if we could uh, very briefly um, go back and talk a little bit about Lanzmann himself. Yeah. So he's born in 1925. Mm-hmm. Um, how does he survive? What, what, what happens to him during the Hitler and war years? And um, he was... So he's like had a relationship with Simone de Beauvoir. Yeah, so he has a very yeah, interesting biography yeah. himself. Mm-hmm. So forty-two ish, he's sent off to this school that's outside of Paris. Um, he's what? He's like seventeen years old. By that point in time, he is helping out somewhat with the resistance. He, in his own biography, autobiography, he inflates his role <laughs> in the resistance. I mean, this is something that happens in hindsight. We can, you know, we can change our stories. We can. Um, but he is involved at a certain level in the resistance. He has a brother and a sister, a sister who ends up being an actress after the war and actually ends up committing suicide. His brother, Jacques Lanzmann, also famous in the entertainment world as well. Um, he goes on to study philosophy um, and becomes a journalist. He gets involved with Sartre and with Simone de Beauvoir at the moment of what's going on in the France war in Algeria. Um, he is completely pro 
France leaving Algeria. Um, he's part of this entire movement that's going on in France at the time. This is kind of his um, rise to consciousness in a particular kind of political sense. Um, he would change his ideas about certain, not about his participation in the 1960s and during the Algerian war, but he would change his views on Israeli states versus Arab states. In, later on in his life. Um, he was not raised in a religious family at all. Um, originally from Bessarabia, um, from mm -hmm. much further east, but in, in France since the early to mid-1800s. He can trace his family to France at, at that point in time. Um, never was a religious Jew, very much more secular, but... Um, he teaches for a while in Germany, so he is fluent in German. That's where he first meets Angelica, who is his second wife. So he has a long-term relationship with Simone de Beauvoir. He becomes the editor-in-chief of Le Temps Moderne, which is the, the journal that she actually started with Sartre, and he was editor-in-chief of that journal until he passed away. Um, how would you best describe what is featured in the Tant Modern? It's a mix of, it's political, Literary. it's sociological, it's also literature and, and humanities. It's, it's a mix of, of, um, of work. That's, yeah. yeah. So he was always doing that alongside um, all of these other activities. Um, but he's a very short spell in Germany teaching at a university. The Free University in Berlin, Berlin. I think, is where he was teaching. Um, and then in the late 60s, he makes his first film about, um, called Sahal, about the Israeli military. And then his next film is Pourquoi Israel? And then Shoah. And then it isn't until 1999 that he makes his first film from the outtakes. So after Shoah in 85, he kind of leaves that behind, goes back to being editor-in-chief full-time and promoting Shoah and going around the world with, with Shoah, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pourquoi Israel? Why, why Israel? Mm -hmm. Ruth Elias's concluding statement, why we need Israel, sort of fit right into the, the line of that argument. She's uh, hardcore. The, She's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Justifiably yeah. so, yes. we understand yes. why. Yeah. Um, we think we have some time for questions from the audience. You may have answered part of this. I, acoustically, I didn't understand everything that you were saying. But she obviously has some very critical information that has not been addressed and that needs to be addressed and I wonder whether she was uh, she was used as a resource, whether she was really interviewed to much greater depth about what happened at the at the pole at the Lodz ghetto. Uh, that is extremely important information mm -hmm. that I don't think has ever really been touched on. She... And I hope the knowledge that she had that she was not taken to her grave. Those 11 hours that Joan Ringelheim did with her in 2005 do address some of this. Ah, and I they see. also address the relationship between the Catholic Poles and, and the Jews in Lodz. So she does go into this when she's 86 years old. Mm -hmm. She did not, off, off camera, she did talk about certain things with Lonsman that are not recorded. But again, it's only about two hours and 20 minutes total that he records with her. Um, and she did not divulge at that point in 1978 when she was... I don't mean everything could have been done by him. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether somebody else interviewed her and whether that information is accessible. Harold, you might know for Rumkowski yeah. and so so as Regina mentioned, um, she was interviewed at length. So there's an, another eleven hour um, series of of interviews with her. But the information on the Lodz ghetto, we have there's an excellent book. I'm forgetting the author's names, but um, just the knowledge of what Rumkowski did. 
There's a short story by Primo Levi about the currency um, and just Rumkowski's decision itself to um, basically, as Lanzmann notes early on, it was one of the very first ghettos created. It was one of the very last to be destroyed because of his strategy of making it. It was called the 11th Division of the German Army because of the supplies it made for the German Army. So to, to have the Jews there working and just be indispensable for the German war effort, he thought he could keep a certain number of Jews alive until the very end of the war. And then the fact that he makes this notorious speech, give me your children, the speech itself is recorded. He had his own ghetto historian recording everything he did every day. So he was not trying to conceal it. Um, and, you know, as she said, uh, he had a, um, a Zionist school and he, he had all kinds of good things that he did. And at the same time, there's that dark underside in order to keep the ghetto going, to keep some people alive. He had to basically make those, um, I'll call them Sophie's choice decisions. I have to give up some of my citizens in order to keep some others alive. And I think that moral ambivalence really comes out in this interview as well. So in general, so to answer your question in short, yes, the Lodz ghetto is, and Rumkowski himself is very well documented and worked over by historians. And it is a very morally difficult uh, issue to, to process because of the, the kinds of things he exactly. did. And as she said, corruption was rife. Mm -hmm. um, one has to say that as well. So... And are any of her further interviews accessible or any other interviews accessible? They're also streaming online at the Holocaust Museum website. Holocaust, okay. So it's, it's a super simple ushmm.org. Mm -hmm. um, you can just plug that in, go to the collections page, search under her name, and pull up the testimonies and stream them online as well with the transcripts. So that is, that is accessible. And somebody else had asked briefly when we were transferring the mic when Ruth Elias passed away. She passed away in 2008. Great show. With all the uh, archival footage that wound up on the editor's floor, has it been centrally uh, cataloged? And is, that, is there anyone working on what's left? This is absolutely centrally cataloged at the Holocaust Museum. Um, that is... I was working on it for six years while I was there. Um, people are still working on it now. There was a period of time, so from 1999 until 2019, 20 years, the work has been ongoing to preserve all 225 hours. 225 hours is one million feet of film because there were multiple takes, there were work prints, there were the original camera negative. The Holocaust Museum has everything. Original camera negative, work prints, rushes, the original quarter-inch audio. That's a whole other separate element because this was being shot in sync sound, but the, the magnetic audio is being recorded separately, and then that's married together when they're working on, on editing this piece. So all of that material is at off-site storage facilities that are owned by the U.S. government and managed by the Holocaust Museum. Interview by interview with a particular kind of exigency that we put together as the archive staff working on this. There are still two people left working on it, Lindsay Zarwell and Leslie Swift. 
Um, Ray Farr and I have since moved on. We were a team of four, and I always like to say we were the four sisters who, without the 20 years of work that the four invisible archivists were doing on this, none of this material would be available. It's really important to understand the invisible labor that archivists do daily to allow others to access, use, and reuse. Um, so the catalog is available also. It's digital, ushmm.org. You can go and see every transcript. You can see a history of each individual who was interviewed. You can stream the footage. That has been, you can only stream so far the material that has been preserved to date. They're up to about 75% of the interviews being restored. It has been, I would say by now, because when I left in 2005, we were already at about 2.5 million spent to do this work. I would say we might be mm, about, well, I don't want to use the number six million. I was like, oh, but it's almost, it's a six, six and a half million dollars that's been spent of government money and private funding because the Holocaust Museum is, is um, part government money and part foundation and, and private philanthropic funding to preserve this material. So, and everything was copied first film to film and then film to digital. So they've done full preservation on all of these materials, which doesn't happen with all film elements that are, that are preserved. Now a lot of stuff for cost reasons is just going straight from film to digital. But with the importance of this material, it was going film to film and then film to digital. And you can watch all of, all of the, the stuff that's available. One of the really kind of fascinating ones is um, if you've seen the film Shoah, you know that um, Lon's been constructed with the help of, of technicians, a particular kind of hidden camera, right? He straps himself with a hidden camera and, and secretly interviews perpetrators. Um, he gets caught because they, he's being followed while he's doing this filming in, in, <laughs> in Switzerland, and he gets, he gets caught um, Recording this, there's a truck outside. It's very much like a scene from the conversation. Um, and there is the footage of him being strapped with the camera. So you can see the little apparatus that's put over his shoulder and how he is trained to use that apparatus and then goes out into the field with it, gets caught in the act, is actually beaten, and has to go to the hospital after that episode. Wow. Of, yeah. Um, in conclusion, I'd like to mention one other interview project. Um, so we've already talked a little bit about how exceptional these were. The Illinois Institute of Technology inherited films, or not films, actually recordings from Paul Boder, a, a psychologist yeah. who went through the camps in 1945-46 uh, and interviewed survivors through the DP camps, displaced person camps afterwards, and has a set of recordings that he began transcribing. And it is the most raw and amazing testimony I have ever heard. It, so these rival his, yeah. about, without the video, of course. Um, so they're very impressive, things. and they're also all available uh, to the extent they were preserved on the uh, Illinois Institute of Technology website. Um, so if you're interested in that. And the and Holocaust I, Museum has a set of them. Has a set of them, thanks too. Thanks to okay. Joan Ringelheim, who brought them in. Okay. So they're also available on the Holocaust website, which I don't know if it's more accessible or less accessible than Illinois Institute. Yeah. But they're phenomenal. And, you know, it's it's so raw. It's so It's present. so raw because it's yeah. immediately they're They've just survived mm -hmm. the Holocaust. And he was the only one to go and ask. They were done on wire spool a transcript. And well, Joan went ahead and re-interviewed several of those people. Yes. And there are some interviews yeah. of those who are still alive in the 2000s. 
who um, spoke about the experience of having been interviewed back in 1945-46, which is also very interesting. So I'd like to thank you very much for um, coming and for uh, staying so long for our, our discussion. Thank you. There will there will also be the, the last two of the four sisters shown on Thursday evening at um, 7 p.m.? 7 o'clock. At 7 yeah. o'clock here in the same theater, and you yeah. will be available afterwards right. to answer questions as Just well. Just a short introduction to that one, and then, you know, yeah. Okay. Thank you okay. very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.